Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 14. Episode 37. This is Writing Excuses, Outlandish Impossibilities. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. Some fantasy and science fiction books have very outlandish premises. I'm not just talking about magic, right, that you have to accept magic. Dan and I were talking about these ahead of, uh, before the podcast, and he started groaning immediately when I brought up um, some dystopian stories, for instance, ask you to swallow a really, really hard-to-swallow premise. Yeah, so like Divergent, as much as I enjoy it as a book, the premise is a future that there is no conceivable way human civilization will ever arrive there. It is an absolute impossibility. But the story it tells is cool and worth telling. So, yeah, I remember when my wife was reading the book Unwind, and she came in and I said, well, what's the premise? She's like, oh, um, people argue over um, abortions so much that they decide that abortions are illegal, but when a kid turns 16, you can turn them into the state to have them harvested for organs to give to other people as a compromise <laughs> on the abortion <laughs> debate. And I said, what? Okay. As the father of two teenagers, <laughs> I'm okay with this plan. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, and my reaction after was like, you know, I bet every teenager thinks that their parents would do that. Um, it's obviously <laughs> Mine just will now. ridiculous, right? But some of the best stories come from a place of a ridiculous premise. This is what science fiction and fantasy mm-hmm. is about, right? This, it's not just science fiction and fantasy. This is... This is where I live. Mm. I am writing you, social satire. You are writing science fiction. Yeah, well, no, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, but I'm writing humor. I'm writing social satire. It is my job to extrapolate something beyond the point which is reasonable in order to make us laugh and make us think. And that is, uh, in many of these cases, especially the the YA dystopias that we talk about. In many of these cases, what we're trying to do is explore an issue that is not even tangential to the world building. The world building is just there so that we can have a conversation about what do you do if you are friends with a group of people and only one of them is going to live mm-hmm. and, and you want to be that one. What is, well, okay, we've, we have to set this up in some way and we don't care how, because the story is about this situation. Um, and so for story purposes, outlandish impossibilities are there not because, at least to, to me, not because they are the story, but because I want to have a discussion about a thing and that's the fastest way I get to have that discussion. Absolutely. A lot of original Star Trek episodes were like that. 
you know, where they're like, what happens to a culture where they're stranded on a planet for so long that, you know, the story of Chicago mobsters becomes their Bible? How does that change their society? That's ridiculous, but it's interesting to talk about. And that's the fastest way to have that conversation. The the Star Trek episode, the Next Generation episode, where all of their conversations are uh, memes, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which we now look at and recognize as, oh, th- that is actually a portion of where our language is drifting. We recognize that we can't drift completely there because... I mean, we had already drifted there. Like mm-hmm. it, That's why Shakespeare is written in nothing but cliches. Yeah. <laughs> he really should have been a I know. better than that. Yes. So let's say you want to write a story like this. Um, is there any special setup that you would use to clue the audience in, to, to make them swallow this really, really difficult-to-swallow pill? So there's a, a thing, and I think Margaret was the one who talked about it, about the buy-in, that you get one buy-in. Um, and the, the, for me, what I try to do is, is telegraph that kind of upfront. It's like, this is the world that we're going to be inhabiting. Uh, a really simple thing um, is uh, Little Mermaid, Under the Sea. You know, the buy-in is, there are mermaids... There are mermaids. That's, that's, yeah. the, you know, it's yeah. like after that, yeah. you, you know, you, you roll forward from there, but, uh, you, you demonstrate to it. The other thing that's happening in Little Mermaid though, is this is a musical at a time when people had stopped doing musicals. And so that entire opening number is getting people used to the idea of mermaids and undersea culture and, and musical with only very, very tiny plot progression. Like there's really very, not much is going on there besides this is the culture. This is this is what the buy-in we're asking you to do. Yeah, this is a really excellent example because as I was thinking about this topic, there are some times where for learning curve purposes, you play a little coy with some of your world building elements. And some of my books, I wait to introduce the magic till later in the story because I know people are picking up a fantasy book and I'm going to step them through characters and things first. But in a lot of other stories, you need to hit people right up front. Little Mermaid's a good example. Harry Potter. You Oftentimes, the prologue is there to say, I am hitting you up front with the premise you're need to going, going to need to accept. There are wizards in this world and there's a dark wizard who almost took over the, the, the fantasy world. Buy into that. And then we'll talk about the character. Yeah, I see this a lot with the chapter critiques that I do, where they are trying to slow roll the uh, the revelation of their world and some of those world-building elements. And you can do that with some things, but there are some things you have to get out right up front because otherwise we're going to be constantly redefining your story every couple of pages and go, oh, oh, wait, they're actually riding on mammoths instead of horses. Oh, oh, wait, and they also have holograms? Uh, like some of that stuff. <laughs> that sounds like it is a specific <laughs> holographic holographic mammoth mount. Yeah. No, Dan's absolutely right. I get this with students a yeah. lot. They they don't know which things to get you to buy into first. And a lot of this is we need to know a tech level for a fantasy yeah. book very yeah. quickly, and we need to know kind of your big premise of the world very quickly. If it is mm. God, this is a really big premise. Yeah, our episode with uh, with Margaret. Um, uh, how weird is too weird was uh, back in February, um, and and one of the you know that that's when Margaret said you know you get one buy, uh, and the the concept that I use is you've got a budget for buy-ins. What is your budget? 
with your new students, just the concept of you have a budget. They may still overspend, but you can point at it and say, the problem here is not that you have too many ideas, it's that you exceeded your budget. Um, How do we... Now, can I quantify budget on a spreadsheet? Um, In a sense, I can, because when I am outlining things in the spreadsheet, I have a column that says, you know, what's the story purpose for this? And if the story purpose for a thing is make the other things possible, then then that is a budget negative. That is something that is, uh, that is a spend that I need in order to make the rest of the story work. So I have to look at the other cells and I have to, those things have to, they have to be really important to the story. Um, and they have to be, uh, they have to be putting money in the bank. They have to be building credibility. Hunger Games works because the interactions between the kids feel real. If the interactions mm-hmm. between the kids felt fake, then we don't have anything that we're going to read. One of the things that someone told me early on, I can't remember who this was, was that you can uh, you can drop a world building detail about every once once a page. And what what they meant was not you get one world building detail per page. It was that you you get one thing that matters per page. That roughly that that's about how much the reader can absorb before uh, before they drop something else and forget. So you have to give them time to absorb something before you give them the new thing, which is what can often lead to that that slow roll that, that you will have, like, well, I'm going to give you these world-building details, but you don't prioritize the ones that you need to do. So it's like you hit them with kind of a world-building detail that paint sort of a big picture thing, and then you can start feeding them the, the smaller details after that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that really does. Hey, writers. Are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique, which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all, think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Um, 
Let's go ahead and pause here, though. You're going to tell us about our book of the week, which is You Owe Me a Murder? Yes. Um, You Owe Me a Murder, which is not by Dan Wells. It is by Eileen Cook. Uh, I don't owe anybody. I always pay up. That's true. (laughs) You are not a serial killer either. Um, So, uh, You Owe Me a Murder by Eileen Cook. Um, It is a young adult novel that is basically strangers on a plane. So if you've seen the Hitchcock film, Strangers on a Train, it is that premise, but it's teenagers on a field trip, you know, like study abroad thing to London. Um, And that scenario happens on the airplane. And it's an outlandish premise that someone would sit down next to some, a teenager would sit on a plane next to someone else and say, why don't you kill my person? I'll kill yours. And And yet that is exactly what the book is. And I tell you, this book is one of those things where I'm reading it and pretty much every page I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. It is such good characterization because once she has made that that single outlandish premise, every character interaction after that is completely plausible, follows this logical causal chain. It's so tightly crafted. It's such a good book. Um, so that is You Owe Me a Murder. You Owe Me a Murder by Eileen Cook. So kind of along that topic, um, how do we write characters who take something very strange as normal? And how do you not alienate the reader from that character, but instead pull them in to that character's way of thinking? I'm thinking of a lot of these you know, fantasy and science fiction books where you'll dystopian, but also just epic fantasy where people just take it for granted that X, Y, or Z, you know, in the Wheel of Time, we take it for granted that there are dark friends who live among us who, you know, could be any of our friends who might just murder us in the middle of the night. And they just accept that. That's part of their Ooh, world. That one's easy because it's true. Mm. How, do you, how do you write characters that take something really outlandish and that's part of their life and integrate it into them and not make them alien? If, if I have, as a reader... If I have a question, if I think something's outlandish and a character beats me to the punch by asking the question and shrugging and moving on because there's no way for them to find an answer, I will shrug and move on, especially if that character is already sympathetic because the author has acknowledged that, hey, some of this, maybe it's a question that I'm going to get an answer to later. Right. And and that is, you know, they've 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 bought another... 20 pages from me because they promised me I'm going, to get an, I'm going to get an answer. And they can break that promise and give me something that I like more. Uh, they just have to have that character in that moment ask the question that right. I'm going to ask. So this is one classic method, which is the hang a lantern on it. When the character asks the question, it allows us to say, oh, the author's thinking about this. I'll get an answer eventually. But what about these worlds like, um, say, the Golden Compass, where everyone's soul manifests or a chunk of it as an animal that skitters around the world and uh, interacts with them. And no one questions it because the whole world has it. How do you make that work? Well, one of the ways to do that is, first of all, to to just let the characters take that completely seriously and to take it in stride. And the way that that works is by giving them something bigger to worry about. When someone from our world reads The Golden Compass, and that's the first thing that stands out is like, wait, what's a demon? Why is there this cat following her around? Like, we have those questions. She doesn't because she's very concerned about whatever other thing it was, and it's been years. She's traveling around inside a university or something. She has her own wants. She has her own desires. She has her own goals, and Mm. that is what is important to her. And so 
we get caught up in that story. Is she going to be able to find her friend? Is she going to be able to get that thing she wants? And then a chapter later, we realize that we've just kind of taken the rest of it in stride the way the characters have. So this is kind of the opposite to hang a lantern on it, exactly. is to downplay it so much and make other things important that we just start accepting it's it. It's lantern versus, sorry, lantern versus lampshade hmm. for me. Lantern is when you're calling attention to it by asking a question. Lampshade is when you're turning it into furniture. So I feel like it's it's less about downplaying it and more about assigning it a place on an emotional scale. Yeah. Um, and that, that for me is that if you have a, a thing that is outlandish, uh, it, it occupies an emotional reality for the character. Uh, Carol Burnett talked about this when she was doing comedy. Uh, specifically, she was talking about the, um, for those of you who do not know Carol Burnett, you're you're wrong and terrible people. It, it's okay. It's okay. I just turned 50. That's why I, I watched her as a, when I was a small child. Um, but but just do yourself a favor and pull up YouTube. We'll put this actually in the uh, the liner notes. The Carol Burnett scene where it's a Gone with the Wind takeoff. And she, yes. there's this wonderful thing in Gone with the Wind where the original where Scarlet doesn't have anything to wear. And so she takes down the curtains and makes a gown out of that. And they do that same scene, and she makes a gown out of it, but she does not remove the curtain rod. <laughs> and is knocking <laughs> things over. Comes down. Yeah. And just, and what she, someone asked her how she played something like that. And she's like, my character believes that she has made the right choice. My character, she, she occupies the emotional truth of her character. And I think that when we're dealing with an, an an, mm-hmm. an outlandish thing, it occupies a place on a, an emotional scale for our character. And if we assign it there and give them appropriate responses, that then also tells the reader how to react to it. So if they are reacting to it as if this is completely normal, then our reader knows, oh, okay. If they are reacting to it as if it's outlandish, then that tells our reader a different thing. Yeah. And to go back to, to what I was saying before, that scene's a great example because that scene is not about there's a curtain rod in my dress. No. That scene is about I have to impress the suitor. Yes. And so she has a goal. She has a thing. We have hung, to abuse the metaphor, we have hung a much bigger lantern on something else. Yeah. And so that's where all our focus is pointed. This segues us really well into my kind of last topic for this podcast, which is when you play it straight and when do you be silly? Uh, and Howard has made an entire career of uh, this <laughs> dichotomy. That line. You're not wrong. <laughs> so how do you do it? How do you decide? How do you decide? Well, when- right. what, um, uh, fundamentally, it's about uh, scene sequel and emotional beats. Uh, the punchline in a if you if you read schlock mercenary strips, you know back to back, all in one sitting, it does not read very much like a book because the beats are just weird. Uh, If I were to tell the whole schlock mercenary story as prose, there would be fewer punchlines and they would be spaced differently. And so the comic strip itself is is a bad example in some ways. And yet, uh, there are emotional beats in a story which need to be played seriously, which need to... uh, I want the reader to cry. I want them to be unhappy. If there is going to be a joke uh, in Schlock Mercenary, I will usually try and pull the joke afterwards, not to undercut the emotional response, but to give us an escape valve for the emotional response. 
Um, and the, you know, the, the math, the timing of these things is a lot different when I'm working with pros. Um, but looking at scene sequel format, looking at, looking at your beat chart for your story will tell you where you're going to be silly, where you got to play it straight. And yeah. And I think, I think the thing that you you said that I just want to draw a line under is uh, thinking about the emotional impact on the reader. And when you're trying to make that decision, um, that is the, ultimately the decision you're making is what effect do you want this to have on my reader? I'm going to play it silly if I want my reader to have a, a, a laugh here, if I want them to have even that as a cathartic thing in a much serious, more serious piece. Um, so, so what I will do then is that I will attempt to signpost it again by the, the character's reaction, but also by the prose that I'm using to lead up to that, uh, where I put my, my line breaks in order to, to get those beats that Howard is talking about in a prose format. If I want to, to ha- hit something as a punchline, then I'm going to put it in a different place in the paragraph than I would necessarily if I wanted it to just blend into the world. Right. And I think also some of the things we were talking about earlier will affect this. For instance, uh, we talked about a lot of these dystopian books. What they do is that's really outlandish premise, but then the characters' emotional responses are played straight and their interactions are played straight. And so even if there are laughs, the story is serious um, and you have to accept this premise. Mm-hmm. A lot of the comedic ways of doing it escalate, right? The premise is weird, and then the next thing that happens spins off of that is even weirder, mm-hmm. and we are escalating in how silly this is getting. Uh, that's a very Terry Pratchett method of doing things. There's a simple simple tool for prose writers. Uh, it's the line feed. Um, if you have something that you want to stick, that's where the line feed goes. If you have a punchline and you want people to take time to process the punchline, that should have been the last thing in the paragraph. If it's in the middle of the paragraph, then the rest of the paragraph may be working against the joke. Now, it's entirely possible that that's the effect you wanted to have, that you wanted them to giggle and then suddenly realize in horror that that wasn't where this was going at all. Um, But I use white space a lot uh, because for for writing humor, the wall of text doesn't tell people, it doesn't signpost it. It doesn't tell you where you're supposed to laugh, where you're supposed to, what's setting up the joke versus where the joke is. Yeah. And technically that's because those, those line breaks create a, a, uh, represent where we pause naturally in speech, uh, the same way the end of a sentence does. But with, with the signposting, um, it's not just, you know, it's not just those line breaks. It's also, uh, as I said, the, the prose that we use leading up to it. If, you know, the um, Douglas Adams, the opening line of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a great example of this kind of signposting because the style of prose that he's using gives you permission to laugh. And and that is, that's the thing that you need to convey to the reader if you want them to know that it's silly, is you have to give them permission to laugh. Otherwise, they'll go into it, and if you haven't given them permission, they they will not take it seriously in the in ways that are damaging to the story. Yeah. Um, I think it is important to point out, um, whether you're going for serious story or comedic story, that a lot of what makes these outlandish premises and outlandish ideas work is the emotional resonance that the reader has with them. Mm -hmm. You know, Divergent, like I said, is not a world that could exist, but Veronica Roth wrote that when she was a college freshman, when she was in a period of her life where she did feel like, 
I am being locked into one path and the society is trying to choose who I'm going to be for the rest of my life. People in high school and early college feel like that. That's a very familiar emotion. And so for the audience she was writing for, it wasn't a real life detail, but it felt very familiar. And we have that resonance with it. Um, we're out of time. But Dan, you actually have my favorite homework that we've come up with this year. <laughs> um, give, us, give us this homework. Okay, we want you to write an outlandish impossibility. And the best way that I know of for you to do that is find a three-year-old and ask them to tell you a story. And then take that story seriously and write it out as if it were a real thing. Um, and whatever bizarre relationships or things or monsters or whatever that that person, that three-year-old tells you, you that that's your reality. Write that story and make it work. If you want an example of this, go read the uh, webcomic Axe Cop. Yes. Uh, this has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.